Hey, I'm Steve Folland. How are you doing? Thanks for listening. This time, let's find out what it's like being freelance. For graphic designer, John Hicks. There's a danger, I think, of letting work fill all the spaces, of just letting freelance fill whatever spare time you've got. And I think it comes down to this sort of feeling of almost like a guilt of, you know, there's a lot of work on, you should be working, you know, you shouldn't be taking the weekend off, you shouldn't be having an evening off, you know, you should be doing something. You're very disciplined and say, okay, I'm going to work from this till then, I'm not going to work in the evening. Do you still get the same amount of work done the next day? And actually, I kind of find that I do. So we have got John Hicks, who is a freelance designer based in the UK in Oxfordshire. Hey, John. Hi, Steve. Thanks for doing this. I know. My pleasure. I'm just, you know, it's because I know these things go go out after the event, but it's absolutely cooking today. (laughs) we're We're both melting. Yeah, both John and I have had to shut all of our windows uh, and our doors, and you've got no aircon. No, uh, I, I, um, I, I severely need to train the cat to to man a fan, uh, <laughs> or attach one to its tail. It would probably yes, annoy exactly. it enough that it would keep swishing it. <laughs> on the on the plus side, I might lose a foo stone this afternoon. So. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, well, I mean, before we both faint, let's crack on and find out. Well, let's start how you got started being freelance so kind of how you've ended up doing what you're doing today yeah well i mean what happened was uh both myself and my wife were working uh, at a publisher's in oxford we are just about to have our first child and first of all she wanted to go part-time three days a week and the boss wouldn't allow it and it got us thinking because we didn't want i didn't want our first child to be in childcare more than they were with us and we were trying to think how we could manage this. In the back of my head, I'd been thinking about freelance for a few years. So I suppose at this point, I'd been working as an employee for six years. So I'd been doing various jobs from the junior designer and working myself up to like a design manager. But working in publishing, I was very much focused on the paper side. And I, I was starting to get interested in websites and kind of software and screen design. So I, I wasn't going to be able to do that where I was. Um, there was an actual digital team and I wasn't allowed anywhere near them. So <laughs> I thought, okay, well, you know, there's, there's a few things that could be, a few itches that could be scratched here. So, so first of all, a bit of flexibility in terms of childcare, but also the opportunity to try and do work in other areas. So outside of print design. And I think the, the final thing that kind of swung it was that my wife's maternity leave, the way that they did it was they pay you three months full-time pay and then three months half pay. And the idea is that when you come back for the first three months, you get pay and a half. So it was, first of all, it's to try and encourage people to come back um, (laughs) and not lose their their staff. But what it also did was actually give us a little bit of built-in buffer money-wise. So we kind of thought, well, all the signs seem to be pointing to this, so I think we should just do it. So back in uh, 2001, January 2001, I finally went freelance. So Sorry, 2002. Get it right. Because this year's 15 years. So yeah, 2002. So when you first went freelance, in what way were you doing it and where were you getting your clients? Well, in terms of doing it, um, I was definitely, I was working from home. Um, so in, in the first six months, I was working from our living room 
uh, we then managed to move house and I had a, a spare room, which is where I stayed for the next few years until my son was born and needed a bedroom. So since about 2005, uh, I've actually been working with other people. So I started off finding a, a design company locally that had a desk spare. So I rented that. And then in about 2007, I started hooking up with local developers and designers uh, to share a co-working space. From there, we've had a few of those, but that's that's sort of been in my sort of working situation since then. So when, when you say like a co-working space, is that one that you've orchestrated yourself? Yeah, exactly. Um, I, I looked into finding offices by myself and it was quite depressing, especially where I am, because, you know, Whitney is quite a, it's a little market town. It's a very kind of non... I try to describe this, but basically if you go to places like Bristol or Bryson or, you know, obviously London yeah. or even Oxford, you know, you'll have really nice, modern, decent co-working spaces. But over here, we tend to get, for the smaller offices, it tends to be very kind of soulless corporate places. And the only one I could afford was this sort of breeze block dungeon with no natural light. So there's a way around that. I kind of thought, well, okay, if I find some of the local people and we share the cost together, then that, that's going to work better. So actually the first place that we ever hooked up was in an old RAF base in Rissington in Gloucestershire. And we ended up doing a, a podcast from there for a couple of years. And then when we stopped that, we basically found a place in Whitney to, to all share together. But obviously there's a financial part. So you can afford somewhere decent if you're sharing with other people. But as a designer, there's also that need to have people around you not just to socialize and talk to but you know you need opinions and you need advice so so for example here with there's there's four of the designers so if i needed a, an opinion on something there's always people there we've even got a developer who is very handy for when i get stuck with things like javascript he really is you know very helpful to have around and, and help me out of a tight spot so there's there's so many benefits to it. And uh, I mean, some places do have proper organised co-working spaces, but this is very much a kind of gentleman's agreement kind of thing. So we all, we all just share the cost together. And uh, yeah, it works out great. It really does. But when when it came to doing that, did you already know these other freelancers? Had you gone out of your way to, you know... Like- mm. Because I sit no, there and I actually. think, I don't really know many, I'd love to do something like that. I don't really know many freelancers. So I sit there and think, how would I go about that? Yeah, well, it, it kind of was basically people that I met. And almost as soon as I met them, I'd say, hey, do you want to share an office together? <laughs> and um, I kind of met people through doing that, really. So I don't think anyone, I, I think I knew, like, um, John Oxen, the guy I did the Rissenton podcast with. We had known each other for like a, a year or two beforehand. But most other people we kind of found through that need of of just trying to find other people. So we looked in all sorts of places. We looked at Flickr. Um, I mean, Twitter didn't really sort of come in until about a year or so later. But then that was useful as a as a tool as well. And uh, Ed, the uh, developer that works here, he runs a local meetup called Whitney Meets, which is which is great. It's just an informal meet at the pub last Thursday of the month. It's not one of these kind of uh, evenings where there's talks it literally is just a meetup and you kind of meet people through that as well so you know and once you're in that position as well people then you find the people email you maybe twice a year or something but people contact you saying you know i'm a freelancer really looking for a 
a co-working space and you know do you have any room or do you know anyone that does so cool and what was the change like to like the way you were working when let's face it so you've gone freelance and your very first experience of freelance and working from home by default of your story presumably included having a newborn baby in the house as well (laughs) yes so I mean in the days that my daughter wasn't at nursery or uh, being looked after by my wife um uh, it was um yes she was around um I was pretending to be working by myself in a room and I kind of I actually didn't mind that. A lot of people go crazy working by themselves. But, you know, I didn't mind that at all. But on the other hand, I now really appreciate the socialising of, of, of being with other people. But it was it was particularly fantastic actually being able to be involved in my child's development. Because I met a lot of people who said, oh, you know, I, I was working so hard those first few years and I, I never got to see them. You know, I never really played much of a part in their, in their growing up. But it meant that at least two days a week was solid daddy time where we did stuff like making pirate boats out of boxes and that kind of thing. You know, so it was really that's that is really precious. And it's I wouldn't say it was easy because obviously when you freelance, you you take as much work as you can. And you're always trying to fend off things like client calls when you've got, um, you know, manage your day with your with your kids. But it's it's, no, it's not easy, but it was definitely worthwhile doing. Um I do remember one time trying to have a meeting and my, my daughter was downstairs rattling the stair gate going, Daddy! <laughs> and it was the most heartbreaking sound I think I've ever heard. So it's, yeah, it's a bit of juggling. It was good. When you first went freelance, how about the client side of it? Like, where were you getting the work from? Well, I, I started off really with clients from, uh, well, the publishers that I worked with. You know, I made sure that I left in good terms so that, you know, they could they could pass any work on to me, and they did. So those first like year or two, there was a lot of that kind of print design work for books. So, so that was good. That had a had a good base to to do that. I also just happened to bump into someone at a local charity that I knew, and ended up doing some work with them on a regular basis. And slowly but surely, what happened was I would spend time. Uh, sort of on my own I would try and have like a few hours a week where I learn stuff so the big thing at the time was learning how to do web design and how to do it properly there wasn't really much in the way of online tutorials at that stage but you could with web design you can sort of look at the source code of things and pick it apart and 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 find out you know how things are driven and just play around really experiment to to, to learn that way so slowly but surely, what happened is the print design faded out. And then over those first sort of three or four years, the kind of the website or the sort of screen design, I suppose, really um, took over. It started off with sort of one job here or there. And then just, you know, it just gently started to grow from there. And did you get into, I mean, obviously you had like a long term commitment originally with, with the publisher or it was whether it was or not, it felt that way since it lasted so long. Were the jobs after that like short term or uh, did you have uh, people on retainers or how did that work? Yeah, I mean, I had a mixture. A lot of it tended to be fairly sort of short term. But then 2005, I was working for a New York startup company and I was doing that for a couple of years. And then later on, I actually worked as a full-time consultant for Opera Software 
because browser design was something I was really interested in and uh, they were advertising for a designer and we we talked about this and they weren't people that naturally use remote workers in the past so I you know I was possibly one of the first people you know if it wasn't in one of their their dedicated offices they weren't quite sure how to how, to, how it could work so um so I've been doing a lot of that on and off over the years and in fact for the last sort of four years I've been more or less full-time up until the point where they stopped using remote workers last year so uh, it's been a mixture really so there's, there are the short-term ones but uh, there's also the long-term retainers as well which I, th- I think work out better I think just generally you feel that there's less constrictions in terms of budget and you've got more time to focus on things and get them right and iterate so that's that's kind of the ideal but at the moment I don't have any of those sort of of contracts how did that feel that you know like when you've got that regular gig for so long and i don't know you probably you start to feel part of the team and like you're um, getting your teeth into something and then they change the policy on remote workers and also the fact that perhaps you've got used to having that bit of income coming in yeah (laughs) it's all the time that i was working that in that in that way I had this back of my head feeling of like, you know, this is going to be very hard to go back into freelance proper with this sort of situation. Because I was still freelance. I was still my own business. Uh, I wasn't an employee. But like you say, having that regular income, it's very easy to get relaxed and get used to that. So, yeah, it's it's been a bit rocky since last year, mainly because, and I think this is the, the key thing, uh, have, it, just getting people knowing that I'm available again because it was never an issue sort of all those years leading up to it there was always plenty of work coming in but there comes a point where you've told so many people that you're not taking any work because you're working for opera and uh, the, the inquiries stop coming in basically so yeah uh, so since since last summer it's been a process of of building it back up again, almost like when I started freelance for the first time, just getting new clients in. And have you gone about that, just reaching out to the people you already knew, saying, oh, by the way, I'm back? Yeah, well, I've tried a number of different uh, methods, actually. My first thing was to email, a large email to people, saying, first of all, apologies for the group email because everyone hates getting them. But this is a situation I'm now back on the market. So, you know, if you've got any projects coming up that you're thinking about, you know, please, please bear me in mind. I also tried a few things like LinkedIn. I deleted my LinkedIn profile about six years ago because it didn't get me anywhere. But I thought, well, I'd heard a few people saying they only ever hire people via LinkedIn. So I thought, well, it's worth a go. So I started that up and I spent a long time building up all the contacts on on LinkedIn and getting recommendations on there. Uh, I, of course, tried Twitter quite a few times. What else to try? There's a site called Dribble with three Bs, which is a, a site that designers use to, to post screenshots of what they're working on. But it, it kind of works basically as a portfolio. So I put more stuff on that. I updated my portfolio. And basically all these different routes, mm. I pretty much got zero response. Uh, I think Twitter, there's been a couple of things maybe through Twitter, but the only sort of ones that actually worked were either me directly talking to companies and promoting and not cold calling as such, but noticing if they were looking for a designer 
you know, giving them a, a message and saying, you know, I work remotely, let me know if I can help out and, and talking to companies that way. And that sort of brought on other work. And what's the other one that's worked? Word of mouth. <laughs> so what's been fantastic is that there's still this sort of simmering kind of in the background of previous projects are still leading people to me. So things like the MailChimp logo, um, a startup in America was looking for, they tried, I think, three or four of the designers and they were trying to get this logo designed and they, they, they weren't getting anywhere. So they said, oh, okay, well, what we want is MailChimp. Who did the MailChimp logo? And that's how they came to me, you know, from that. Um, some are literally just contacts from years ago that have suddenly worked out. And then recently, there's been a few of those clients who have then recommended me to, to other new clients. So to be honest, you know, I, self-promotion doesn't come naturally to me. But I tend to find that this, the, the, the only two ways that work for me are word of mouth and, and directly talking to, to people at companies. Mm. Actually, another route um, is things like conference speaking. So I had a bit of a break, but I, the last few years I've been doing a lot more conference speaking again. And I think it's good for profile. But again, I've still never directly got a, any work through that. So, yeah, it's amazing, really, actually, just how... <laughs> how I can get very few of these sort of channels to work. And it's and it's different for everyone, I think. Some people manage to find LinkedIn or Dribble a lot more productive for them. Um, maybe it's the type of work they do. I'm not sure, but it's, yeah. It, certainly, I, that's what I've, I've found. And if we were to go to your website, so if people were to go to beingfreelance.com and click through to your website right now, mm. is what they see what you've had for many years or has it been redeveloped recently like yeah well a lot of it's quite new stuff um i think mainly around the sort of three four years old at the maximum there's stuff on there like work i did for spotify which you know although it's been replaced by spotify last year i'm still really proud of that work and i still think it's a very good Mm. um advertisement really for what i what i can do so there are things like that that I keep on there. Sadly, a lot of the opera work that I've been doing for years isn't really something I can put on online. So all that kind of UX or interface work that I've been doing, a lot of it's been experimental. It's, it's stuff that's under NDA and you can't you can't use it in the portfolio. So it's a shame, really. It doesn't sort of show the full range of what I do. But there's a few projects that I've been working on this last year that hopefully will be coming live quite soon. And I can then start to update it. But yeah, generally, I think that's, it's pretty much most of my new stuff. And there's always a temptation to include really old things like, um, well, the Firefox logo is a good example, because that's something that still gets me sort of traffic or linkage. But it, it now it feels so old and has been updated quite a few times since I did it. And I'm also not that you know, pleased with the, the final result of the, the first version. Um, that, you know, that sort of stuff I've kept off the portfolio, even though it's sort of, it's the most well-known mm. work, work that I've done. It's, I, to be honest, I sort of feel I wanted to move, move beyond that a bit, I think. Well, certainly enough big names on, on your website anyway, and, and uh, an instantly recognisable work as well. Well, I'm intrigued, like, given uh, what happened then with Opera, and sort of like losing that, but also not having the work that you can show in your portfolio. Mm. Like, would you ever go into that situation 
again or would you prefer to stay with multiple clients rather than have all your eggs in one basket as it were uh, to be honest I would do it again because uh, at the end of the day what I really enjoyed about that kind of work is the teamwork and I think you mentioned that I think you picked up on that that idea that you're you're working with other people I mean obviously physically I work with other people but we were all work on different projects so having something whereby I'm working with other designers other developers um, and as a group uh, we're creating something I get a real buzz from that and it I don't get quite the same buzz when I'm doing stuff on my own necessarily I doesn't say I don't enjoy that work but there's something about doing stuff as a team so it's definitely something I'm on the lookout for but I uh, you're right I'm also wary of putting the all the eggs in one basket and uh, something I've really enjoyed in this last year is getting back the variety which is one reason why I don't tend to kind of categorize myself as a icon designer or a UX designer because I do a lot of these things and I enjoy I enjoy having that variety yeah that's something isn't it? because it can be tempting I mean you have niched to a certain extent should we say yeah but <laughs> but, but 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 yeah but it, it must be tempting to say right well I'm only going to do logos or I'm only going to do icons or mm. well certainly I mean there is you know you, you could do that and obviously it restricts how much work you can get in but um I just find that for example if I I at one point a few years ago, I could have chosen to become solely an icon designer because I did enjoy it. And it's something that I kind of I spend a lot of time researching and I feel like I'm, you know, I'm, I know what I'm doing with, with icons. But at the same time, just doing this, doing icons all the time. Um, I think it's maybe true of anything that you really enjoy. If you're always having to do it and you're always doing that to a deadline and to a budget, you maybe don't get the same enjoyment out of it. So, yeah, I think while I can, I'm, I, I love having that freelance of, of doing, you know, illustration one day, logo design the other day, UX design the next. And, you know, just getting this really kind of broad pattern of work that just sort of kept, stops you getting bored with one thing, I think. And you mentioned at one point, you know, that instinct to take as much work as you can. Do you simply take as much work as you can or do you manage to manage your workload? I think there's got to be a certain extent to where you can manage it. So, uh, you know, obviously when the inquiries come in, there is a certain element of uh, finding out, for example, their budget. You know, if they think their budget isn't really going to be suitable with you to pass them on to somebody else. Or if sometimes you get a very bad feeling from the way someone's communicating with you. It might be that you sort of feel up front, this is going to be, you know, uh, more trouble than it's worth. That doesn't tend to happen so much, but you, you're always on the lookout for those kind of things. And usually it happens if further down the line, I always thought, yeah, I should have listened to myself. I, I kind of thought this could be the, could be a problem. But generally I take as much as possible. There's a danger, I think, of letting work fill all the spaces. So regardless of how much actual work you take on, I think there's a danger when you're freelance, or certainly I had this, of just letting freelance fill whatever spare time you've got. And I think it comes down to this sort of feeling of almost like a guilt of, you know, there's a lot of work on, you should be working. You know, you shouldn't be taking the weekend off. You shouldn't be having, 
you know, an evening off, you know, you should be you know, doing something. Or, you know, even when you've just sort of, you know, you've got nothing planned and you're just sort of messing around, well, I may as well do some work. Again, it's another discipline that I'm having to relearn of not letting it fill all the available space that you've got. You know, for example, if you're very disciplined and say, okay, I'm going to work from this till then, I'm not going to work in the evening. Uh, do you still get the same amount of work done the next day? And actually, I kind of find that I do. I don't know if by doing work in the evenings, it feels like it's being stretched further than it needs to be. And if you're a bit more focused by having a, an evening off and having having that time to get them to headspace, that when you come to it the next day, actually, you're, you're much more productive. So, um, yeah, that's something I'm very aware of, you know, no matter how much work I take on. Yeah, it's an interesting point. And part of that must be like being a dad. So well, you've got two two kids, was it? Or yeah. yeah. So I mean, um, they're getting a bit more grown up now. They're sort of sixteen and fourteen. So it's less sort of intense as it was in the early days. You know, when you can't do anything independently of them. Particularly um, these days, they're m- much more independent. They're much more. They don't look for you for entertainment. In fact, you know, complete opposites. Yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, so now it's you going, please play with me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> hey, let's do something together. Let's have some father-son time, you know. Um, so they're just naturally sort of drifting off and they prefer the company of friends. And you said about, you know, like f- not letting work fill all of the time. When you first started out, you were obviously spending you i think you said like a few hours i don't know whether it's a week or a day uh, probably a week uh learning uh particularly i guess because you wanted to go from print to screen design yeah do yeah. you still make time for for learning a, a little bit it's it's less structured I, I i don't know how i managed it actually but in those early days i managed to sort of have like a friday afternoon maybe two or three hours learning something new And it always paid off. You know, if I was learning something um, the following week, there'd be a job inquiry where fortunately I was know what I was talking about because I was doing it last week. So it was was brilliant. Trouble is now there's so much to, to keep up with. You really need that kind of, a real project to work on in order to, to do it, I think, and to learn it. So it happens a bit more, uh, naturally as sort of a part of the job I think rather than a set time per week but yeah there's always I always try and sort of keep up with some developments because it does change so rapidly and how about the finance side of it how have you coped with that of being freelance <laughs> very badly <laughs> <laughs> that's great <into> laughter <laughs> no yeah not too bad actually I mean what I've from the start what I've always done was to uh, put aside a certain portion of the money into a, a deposit account for anything to do with tax. In my first year, I was a, a sole trader and I didn't realise that actually at the end of that first year, the taxman looks at you and what you've done and says, OK, so this is the tax you owe for that year. And then they say, OK, so we're going to pres- presume that's the same uh, going to happen this year coming so you now have to pay for a year up front as well as the year you've just paid um fortunately i'd managed to save enough naturally to cover that but it was a huge shock but i've always tried to sort of be sort of quite stringent about doing that so i've managed so far for all these years not to have a business overdraft or a business credit card but money comes in i take a at the moment i take 30 percent 
So 30% goes into a tax account and that pays for tax bills, accountants, end of year bill. And also there's, there's usually a little bit of a buffer in there as well, just in case, for example, uh, you know, invoices haven't been paid one month. I can, I can pay my salary from that. But it's getting into that regime of every time the payment comes in, put aside the 30%. And, you know, over the years, you know, building up a buffer in both the deposit account and the current account. So yeah, I mean that's it's it actually has not been too bad. I mean I you know I joke about it and say you know it's I think the the, the hard part of financing is when you're freelance is the whole payment of invoices. Um, there are some people who I had one last week who I charged a deposit for a job and it was paid within the day and that was an American client. And then likewise I've you know I have clients who I'm badgering every day for a few months before they finally pay so that's that's a difficult one to do some people are very aggressive about it some people are very you know straight in there with the uh, threatening legal action and I tend to do things like put 15 day terms on invoices so that you know, rather than waiting a month and then chasing them for payment you know you're starting that chasing from the 15 days you know from sort of half a month and yeah, some some clients are good, some some aren't. Uh, some of them have thing called check runs where they seem to only pay people once a month. And <laughs> you know, if you if if that check run was yesterday when the invoice came in, then you've got to wait another month before you get any money. So one of the ways around that is I always charge a fifty percent deposit from the estimate. And all clients I, I deal with, none of them have a problem with that. That's all fine. And then charging either the full amount on the, the end of a project or if it's a really long project, having kind of set milestones. But in terms of cash flow, uh, that's been quite vital, really yeah. having that deposit coming in. Yeah. How did you get into the confidence speaking side of things? It was weird. I was asked, uh, when was it? Uh, South by Southwest 2005, a guy was putting together a panel and invited me to speak, which was great because I had nothing to talk about. But the fact that it was a panel meant that that inability to talk very much was divided over four of the people. So <laughs> um, it's, I always feel guilty about that whole process of learning while you're doing, but it was a learning process. And I also, from watching conference talks, I kind of know the ones I think, well, well that was brilliant or that one was wasting my time and I'm always trying to hone my talks so that they're not like the the ones that waste time um you know or, or talk down to people um so yeah so since that one um I've been invited to a few more and a few more and it sort of grew from there and I, I've got to admit I don't enjoy it I have to have a really good subject to talk about that I really know and that I'm confident that no one else is going to cover so that's kind of where the icon design thing came in, really, because I wrote a book about it as well. I kind of, I wouldn't say I was an expert, but it, it was the thing that I could talk about. So I developed this talk and then and took that talk over several conferences. And each time you do it, you refine it and improve it. And especially when that moment when you're standing and giving the talk, I find that's when you actually realise ah, yeah, this is a weird bit. This shouldn't be here. This should be <laughs> further on or it should be further back. And, you know, you make a mental note and next time you get it that little bit better and improve it. So, um, But you wrote a book as well. When was that? So that came out in 2012. Again, it was one of those things like freelancing where I'd been thinking about it for a few years and I'd been noticing that no one had written a book about icon design. 
And I knew that there was one other guy who probably would, which was Josh Williams, who worked for, um, invented Guala, which was then bought by Facebook. But at one point he was talking about it. And, and one year I messaged him and saying, you know, what do you reckon? Are you ever going to get around to doing the icon book? Because if you're not, then I'm going to have a, have a crack. And he, he was too busy being bought by Facebook. So that was, that was, my, <laughs> that was my, my, my gain, really. But what, what the really key thing with that was that I knew a publisher that I knew would treat it well and, and, and do a really nice job, which was uh, Five Simple Steps Publishing, which was Mark and Emma Bolton had created. They'd self-published their own book and then realised, well, now we've, incre- we've created this infrastructure for printing, designing and selling books. So we may as well do other books. And they started a publishing company. So it, if it wasn't for that, uh, having someone interested in it, willing to put some of their money towards it as well, and uh, to pay for things like editors and project managers, then it wouldn't have been written. It'd be one of those side projects that would just be sitting around, you know, done a few paragraphs. And did you notice that it made a difference to you as a freelancer? Well, I think one thing is, I mean, obviously it's, it, you never quite make up the money that you get from, you've lost from writing the book because the writing process takes such a long time. But one thing is that it does give you a little bit of residual income once it's done, which is an important thing if you're not always relying on client projects for income and you've got something like that. Um, you know, some people sell things like T-shirts and mugs, you know, just something that gives a little dribble of money in um, just to, to help things across. But in, so financially there was, you know, sort of up and down there. But um, in terms of freelance work, I think it did help things. I think basically I got the Spotify work through that. Um, it, this kind of being known, you know, for writing the book on icons. Um I think that sort of certainly helped get a few yeah. sort of quite good profile jobs. I wouldn't say it's got a lot of work from that. But then you don't know what came off the back of getting the Spotify job. Yeah, exactly. So it, it all it all kind of snowballs from something. But one thing I am, I'm just proud that it got made and I had people there that supported me making it. And I'd still, I'd love to do another edition. But, you know, it, it, it's great feeling to have done it. It's a nice thing to have on your CV, I think. Yeah. So that sounded like a side project. And you mentioned the podcasts uh, as well. You mentioned one podcast, but I know you do another one as well. So, yeah. How important are side projects to you? Oh, really important. Yeah. I think in terms of um, fun, really, a, a bit of bit of sanity. Side projects don't always have to be big things that get released. You know, side projects can be just really tiny little things. Um, there was a thing I did for a, a, a summer I drew a monster every day for my son's lunchbox <laughs> so that uh, when he opened his lunchbox, um, he would just get a new new monster every day. And it was something that had a maximum of five minutes to do. So I had a little pad of this sort of square white paper, like a sort of memo pad. And I'd give myself a maximum of five minutes because that's really all there was before, you know, after he'd made the sandwiches, before he had to go to school to draw something. So that was like a side project, but it was one that was, it was just really quick. And I'd, I'd sort of put them onto a Tumblr blog and Flickr at the time. And, but it's these little, little side projects that really kind of make a difference. It's, it's ways of learning things. It's a little creative challenge that you can sort of stretch your creative muscles with. So it doesn't have to be a big thing. But then 
um, like like at the moment with my, I have a podcast called Troika, which is a podcast about music, which is one of my big passions. I don't know if there's like a sort of inner radio DJ that I'm trying to get out or uh, I just like talking about music and uh, it's it's just really enjoyable. I don't always have the time to do it regularly, but when I do it, I really enjoy doing it. Yeah. Hats off to you with the, the monsters in the lunchbox. Like I, I can barely remember to put the sandwiches in the lunchbox. I would say I managed to keep it going for maybe a month or two, but it, it was, it was hard. Definitely. I would, I mean, I wouldn't say it's, there were some mornings where I just looked at the blank bit of paper and I just thought, I've got nothing. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely It's nothing. the invisible monster. Uh, yeah. I should have tried that one. <laughs> okay. Now I always do this thing where I ask for Three, I've said this so many times, I can't believe I nearly said it wrong. Yeah. I, I always do this thing where I ask for three facts about yourself, make two true, one a lie, and let me figure out the lie. What have you got for me? Okay. Uh, well, listening to previous ones, I kind of feel that actually what I've got to offer is quite dull, but we're going to go for it. So the first one is, I met my wife by selling her my dodgy car, and we got engaged <laughs> five weeks later. The next one is that I once left my daughter in the car park at Sainsbury's and drove off. And the last one is I learned web design by making a Bill Oddie fan website. <laughs> so your wife, to mm-hmm. me, bought your car. Yep. So, so, so was that the, literally the first time you met her? She turns up on your doorstep yeah, to check out your was, car, kicking yeah, your tyres. Literally, literally the first time. So I had this um, yellow uh, VW Beetle, which I loved, mm. but it was, it was really falling apart. I found out later that it was even dodgier than I thought because it was an insurance write-off that uh, the guy who sold it to me didn't declare it as such. <laughs> I think it was almost like sort of two halves put to, welded together, and it, I, it was it was just going into the ground. It was rusting, and I couldn't afford to keep running it, so I desperately had to sell it to someone. And I heard through work of a friend of a friend that someone knew that uh, someone was looking for a beetle. So that was great. So we, I, 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 I met Lee. She came down for the day and I had a go in the Beetle and loved it and wanted to buy it. And I remember my mum saying at the time, well, thank goodness for that. Let's hope you never see her again. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, as she drove off in the car, I was thinking, actually, I'm quite sad about that, but not because the car's going. Oh. Um, so I actually sort of rang her up a few days later and said, this is a bit weird, but do, do you fancy going out? for a drink or a you know bit of bit of food or something and then that was our first date we just there was just something no. about her you know sometimes you know when you meet the person and uh, that's not i thought you were going to say your first date was when you met in court uh when she uh, <laughs> well when the wheels also, fell off the car <laughs> yeah it did obviously mean that um that that kind of tested the relationship <laughs> because um we had a big overhaul um where it was all stripped back and uh, all the rust panels were taken out. Everything was re-welded. And then, again, it really just it absolutely failed MOT and no one bought it. We had to get it scrapped. So, um, yeah, it wow. kept coming back as this kind of, like, problem in my life. That's, not, that's true. Look, that, I mean, that sounds like some sort of Hugh Grant film, that whole plot. So is it true? <laughs> you left your daughter in a Sainsbury's car park and then drove off. Yeah. So, uh... Well... What happened was I, I, I find it very stressful when I was, you know, you, you're being a new parent. So my, my daughter was about uh, just over a year at the time. Um, and I, the whole thing of just like going out and 
you know, remembering to take everything with you, like, you know, spare nappies and all these sort of things. And it makes it very stressful. And I found the whole shopping experience very stressful. So what it, was, it was a day like today, really, really hot, sunny. So I, I put around the back of the car in the shade so that, you know, she wouldn't be too um, in the sun while I was getting the stuff in the boot. And I was so, I don't know what I was thinking at the time. I was so single-minded. I put all the shopping in the boot, shut the boot, Drove off. And then I got... To, I didn't... I will, I'll admit I didn't get too far. I got to the the exit where they had their big roundabout and then realised... <gasps> and then drove back. And, and she was still sitting there um, quite happily under, under the shade of this tree. Um, a little bit perplexed, but not crying yet. So, yeah. <laughs> I love the fact that you put her in the back of the car so that, you know, she's protected from the shade and then go and put a load of exhaust fumes in her face. Um, well, yes, exactly. <laughs> so, and then your very first venture into web design was creating a Billoddy fan site. <laughs> it's my embarrassing past. I don't think anyone knows this, actually. Um, it's a bit of a revelation. But what happened was, uh, when I was growing up, I was... I was a big fan of Bilotti. I, I loved the goodies. And uh, he would then go on to do lots of uh, bird watching shows. And it was just one of those kind of celebrities that I've, I've always enjoyed watching. And it started off, not ironically, but it's not a serious thing. I thought, well, I, I, I need a, a subject for a website. And then I can then learn all these things like, you know, how you do navigation, how you do forms and sign-ups and things and it's the days when you used to have like you know stat counters showing you how many people so many visits today and that kind of thing two visits today but i i created this it was billoddy.net um this sort of fan website and i sort of gathered information about because he's got quite a career of not just uh, tv and comedy and bird watching but things like music so i i use this sort of to gather it and then there's this kind of, I think maybe it's a male thing, but it starts to get a little bit obsessive collective. So it started off as a not too serious, but actually became this really serious, I'm going to be the most comprehensive site on the internet about Bill Oddie. Um And the thing that really stopped it for me, that, that, that made it not fun to do anymore... Uh, was the fact that so many people wrote to me saying, Dear Bill Oddie, and I have to say, no, no, I'm not Bill Oddie, this is just a fan site. <laughs> and people asking for autographed items to sell at a charity auction and that kind of thing. The the flow of all that just made it a little bit kind of like, I think it made me sort of st- step back and realise, actually, I think maybe I've taken this a little bit too far. <laughs> I don't think I admitted it to my wife for a, at least a year. <laughs> so it was, uh, that it was out there. But it kind of become, you know, once you've left something so, lo- so long before you tell someone, you think, oh, God, I can't tell them now. <laughs> I, I feel like you've accidentally told me three truths. How can one of these possibly be a lie? You, you have built up such a backstory for each one, if it isn't. Oh, man. In which case, applauds. Um, oh, good. The, I mean, Bill Oddie <laughs> sounds utterly convincing. The fact is, if you were learning web design, you would need a topic. Although you did say your passion was music. Sainsbury's and daughter, leaving your daughter. I, I can kind of believe that, especially when they're young and they're quiet and it's stressful in the car park. And But then part of me thinks... As somebody who lives in Whitney in Oxfordshire, your MP used to be David Cameron, who famously left his daughter in a pub. 
Oh yes, I forgot about that. Yeah, I I did it. I did it first. <laughs> this is before he did that. So you know, this was at least at least eight years before he did that. So maybe he got the idea from me. Oh, did you get the idea from him? Uh okay. I'm gonna say you didn't leave your daughter in Sainsbury's. Oh, you got it. Yes. <laughs> I thought for a second that you're going to go for the Bill Oddie one. And I thought I've got him. No, yeah, absolutely, yeah. I, I'd never, <laughs> never left my daughter in this car park, uh, and uh, I had actually forgotten about David Cameron doing that. That made, maybe made it a little bit less believable. That was the only rumble. The whole Whitney, uh, the Whitney David Cameron, and, and yet you hadn't even thought of that. Yeah. Well, uh, I tell well, you what, though, what a beautiful story for Dodgy Car Story was, and like I say, that deserves to be turned into a film. There's something. <laughs> something That'd be excellent. Nice yeah, it was yeah, a great yeah. time. It was, uh, you know, I've never thought that w- would happen. You know, you always think you meet yeah. someone through friends or, you know, at a some sort of dating night or something like this. And actually it was this complete out of the blue, wow, um, this is great. And yeah, we, we were engaged five weeks later and we've, been, we've almost been married 20 years now. So, um, yeah, it's lasted. I, I I can imagine everybody listening their reaction right now. It's uh, it's a thing of beauty and hatred mixed together. Of doubt, oh, you have such a lovely story. Okay, it's yeah. It, it wasn't that lovely. We say when the car was drain, draining all our money and it wasn't and, that lovely when we were stuck on the M4 for six hours. Well, yeah, uh, we've had that. Yeah. <laughs> okay, now if you could tell your younger self one thing about being freelance. What would that be? It's going to sound weird compared to what I've just said earlier, but don't spend all your money. <laughs> um, there's, I would definitely say to myself, you know, keep saving. And I, I remember listening to one of your previous podcasts where I think someone, they, they save a year and a half's worth before they went freelance or something. Yeah. Um, and that's incredible. But it sounds boring and it's it's not like living in the moment, but... You know, there are definitely times in my life where I thought, you know what? I wish I hadn't just thought, hey, I've got all this spare money. I'll blow it. <laughs> let's do this. Let's do this holiday. Let's let's buy this this Mac. You know, it's um, yeah. I would like to say to myself, you know, just a little bit. You know, just just ease up a little bit and just think about whether you really want this thing. And yeah, that that that's the only advice I would give. And then that would you know, that would help in the future. That's so funny. I've literally been looking at flights to Australia today and now you've just kicked me up. Oh, no, 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 just do it. Yeah, if you're going to Australia, that's different. (laughs) (laughs) I think think at one point we we even remortgaged our house to go to Australia and that was... um, Wow. It was... uh, I didn't regret that. That was fantastic. It was really nice. Right when I very first went freelance uh, and I hadn't been doing the tax thing... And you know, like you just said about the whole paying in advance like I didn't yeah. ex- I wasn't anticipating that and I'd had this money coming in and I thought oh look we, we decided to go to Australia because my wife was still on maternity leave we we're never going to have an opportunity to have six weeks again and I was like I've got this money look at all this money let's just let go <laughs> yeah. and then shortly afterwards you know because it was suddenly January in came a tax bill I was like oh my god that's what that money was for. I wonder why it's that was sitting there. such a shock, though, isn't it? I mean, I, I, I thought I'd, I'd tried to read up as much as possible when I performed in freelance, and I'd knowing all about VAT registration and the fact that you could claim things three months prior to being VAT registered, like when I bought my printer and, and all this stuff. And nowhere did I see, you know, 
you're going to get a big shock at the end of your first year because you've got to pay one year in advance as well as the year previous. So, um, yeah, I'm now a limited company and that's um, a little bit simpler in that sense, but there's other kind of admin and paperwork and payroll and things oh, that I God, pay, yeah. a, pay an accountant to, to worry about for me, really. Yeah. Um, I, did I? No, I didn't finish it. Right. In, the, in which case, <laughs> got so distracted talking about my own financial woes. It became therapeutic there for a moment. Uh, yeah, it's funny. It's li- Tell me about your mother. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, John, it's been so nice talking to you. Uh, do check out John's podcast as well. There's links through to everything that John's up to at beingfreelance.com. While you're there, check out all the previous guests and the vlog and sign-ups of a newsletter. But most importantly, sh- if you've enjoyed this, share this episode with everyone you know and get them involved as well. And, you know, drop John a message on Twitter as well and say so to him too. So, yes, beingfreelance.com and then you can find out what John is up to online. Uh, Thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you and all the best being freelance. Thanks very much, Steve. It's been brilliant. Yeah, so there we go. John, who calls himself on Twitter a gentleman graphic designer, which turns out to be true. Thanks to him. Don't forget, I'm also busy doing the vlog where I document my freelance week. Check it out. I'd love it if you consider subscribing on YouTube. You can also sign up for the newsletter at beingfreelance.com. In the meantime, you have a great week being freelance. Freelance.